Genesis chapter 9, uh, reading from verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they didn't see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. We'll stop there from now. We'll go on into chapter 10. But let's stop there for, for now and, and pray. Father, we come now to look at your word and we thank you for your word. It's the revelation of your glory and of your glorious plans. We thank you that you have saved us and you've called us to belong to you and you've commissioned us to be part of your work in this world. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand uh, what it is that you are doing so that we can give glory to your name as we participate with you in your work. Please be our teacher. By the power of your Spirit, take your word and change us and show us your glory in the face of Christ and your desire to see him exalted amongst the nations. Lord, we know this text lays out something that has been on your heart from the beginning and we desire that it would be on our heart too and so we ask for a special work of your grace this morning that Christ might be magnified in his name we pray Amen so this text has um, been the primary biblical text uh, that has been used to support uh, class distinctions in the Middle Ages, uh, to support slavery in the 17th and 18th century, uh, to support apartheid in this country. Uh, it's been used to justify the extermination of distinct ethnic groups. It's a text that Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses use or have used to support the oppression of blacks. It's a text that the church in this country used to not only condone Uh, the oppression of black Africans and make it acceptable but even to make it commendable. And so I think we have to pay careful attention to this text not only because of how it's been wrongly applied um, but also because the rightful application of this text I think was misunderstood by Israel and is largely misunderstood or ignored by the church today. So before we look at the details I just want to look at the context in which we find this text Um, so we can understand it in its biblical and historical context. One of the themes uh, that runs throughout the book of Genesis is the theme of blessing and cursing, God's favor, God's uh, enablement. 
God enables people to accomplish His plans and purposes. Uh, he blesses them to do that. He strengthens them. He supplies what they need. And then the other theme is God's cursing, uh, God's opposition, God's judgment, normally as the result of rebellion. And so in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we have creation, and then we have God blessing creation, enabling them to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and accomplish His plans and purposes on the earth. And then we have Genesis 3, the fall of mankind into sin and the cursing of Adam and Eve, the cursing of the earth as a result of that sin. We have Genesis uh, chapter 4, where the cursing of Cain, who killed Abel, and, and the effects of that in the generations that flowed um, from him. Uh, we have the flood and God bringing his curse, his judgment upon uh, all uh, the living on the earth, and yet bringing uh, his blessing through Noah and those who were kept safe on the ark and entering into his covenant with Noah and then blessing them again and telling them to be fruitful and multiply and promising to enable them to accomplish his purposes on the earth. And then, of course, you've got uh, Genesis chapter 11 flowing from this, the Tower of Babel and how God curses the nations and spreads them all over the earth. And yet Genesis 12, how he then chooses Abraham as his means to take his blessing in order to reconcile these nations back into a place of favor with him. And so these twin themes of blessing and cursing run throughout the book of Genesis, and they really uh, show us what God is doing. And, and they help Israel to understand why they are in a place of favor, not as an end in itself, but that they might be used of God to restore his favor to the nations that they might carry out God's mission uh, to the nations. And as we look at this passage then in Genesis chapter 9, we have to ask, what is, what is the big point of this in that context? And what we have here is we've got three lines of descendants, the, the, the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and, and it's these lines of descendants coming from them. And we have a declaration of blessing uh, on two of the, the lines, and a declaration of cursing on one of them. It says in verse 26, May the God of Shem be blessed. And in verse 27, May God enlarge Japheth, and yet the curse on Canaan, that he will be a servant of servant to his brothers. And in Genesis, where does blessing and cursing ultimately come from? It comes from God. And so, yeah, we have God who is enabling people to fulfill his plans and purposes, and opposing those who are opposed to him and his plans and purposes. And so we have here a clear indication of God's role uh, in the fate of the nations that grow out of these three individuals. Two will experience God's blessing, God's enabling uh, to prosper, um, and one will experience God's opposition and be humbled. And so we can see here that God's plans and purposes for the world uh, don't only concern individuals, but they concern those nations that grow out of those individuals. And the fate of a nation is determined by its relationship to God. God plays a central role among the nations. Now if you think about the historical context, Israel are poised to enter the promised land, the land of Canaan. Um, and here they are... Um, uh, God is giving them a foundation to understand what they're about to embark on. We looked in Genesis chapter 4 and 5, we saw um, the line of Cain, 
And uh, it was a line that was secular, a line without God's blessing, and ultimately that line was destroyed in the flood. And then we, we saw the line of Seth after the fall, and how that was a line that walked with God, that worshipped God, and the, that was the line that was taken through the flood, and ultimately received God's blessing and commissioning after the flood. Now yeah, after the, the flood, we again get this uh, uh, perspective of these descendants, this lineage that will come from the survivors of the flood. In this case, it's three lines of descendants. And Israel are poised to enter the promised land, and they have to understand that they are the, the descendants of those who are blessed, who will experience God's favor, God's enabling. And they will be going into the land of Canaan, a, land, a, a people, a land that is under God's curse, God's opposition. The Jebusites, the Amalekites, the Hittites, these are all descendants of Canaan. And they are going in to accomplish God's judgment on them for their sin and rebellion. And this text provides the foundation for their faith then that they will, this rabble of slaves who have no real experience uh, in military warfare, no real power, no mighty kings, and yet they'll be coming against all these nations that are in Canaan, these peoples, and they'll come against uh, kings of great renown, cities of great fortification, people of great power. And this text tells them they need not be concerned because God will enable them to accomplish his mission. And he will oppose those that they uh, are going in uh, to take over. Israel had to understand that their mission was God's mission. And God's role in the affairs that were about to take place was central. And so firstly we see God's role among the nations. God's role among the nations. This is kind of tracing back from the current uh, scenario where they were about to enter Canaan, tracing back to say, where did Canaan come from? And why is it that God was favoring Israel and using them to oppose and judge Canaan? And we find the answer here in Genesis chapter 9. Really, after the flood, we know from chapter 8, verse 21, um, that God understood the hearts of man haven't changed, they're just as sinful as they were before. The flood hasn't fixed the root of the problem, which is sin in the heart. And yeah, we see the reality of that, that even the righteous Noah, even a man who was distinguished amongst men, um, falls into sin. And, and we see again, as with Adam and Eve, as with Cain and Abel, that sin causes division and discord, even amongst the most intimate of relationships. And the text itself, however, doesn't focus on the sin of Noah, um, but the sin of Ham, and really his descendants. And it, it's linking three related sins, the sin of drunkenness, the sin of nakedness, or sexual impropriety, and the sin of dishonoring. Drunkenness, uh, you know, drinking alcohol wasn't condemned in the Old Testament. Psalm 140, uh, 104 verse 15 says it's, it gladdens the hearts of man, but drunkenness was condemned. Passages like Proverbs 23:29, Noah is clearly guilty of this. And nakedness, well, nakedness was associated with sin and shame from the fall. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, they became aware of their nakedness. They were ashamed, they were exposed. And so nakedness and the shame of sin were connected from that time. In ancient culture, if you wanted to shame someone, you would disrobe them or partially disrobe them. Modesty was highly valued. Immodesty was closely associated with sexual immorality, sexual sin. 
And then, of course, dishonoring parents, dishonoring those who should be honored. Um, there's this phrase here, it says um, in verse 22, Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and he told his brothers outside. Now, there's a phrase in Hebrew, um, to uncover the nakedness of someone was used as a euphemism um, to refer to sexual relations, um, often inappropriate sexual relations. And so some people argue that um, Ham was guilty of some kind of sexual misconduct here. And it's just been described euphemistically. It's just been painted in very general terms. Um, I wouldn't hold to that view because the phrase here, he saw the nakedness of his father, is not quite the same as the phrase to uncover the nakedness of your father. And secondly, if you see how the brothers responded, um, it shows that there was nothing um, more to this than simply that he looked on the nakedness of his father and that was dishonoring. Um, partly our modern culture is just so used to immodesty that we don't see a big deal in it and so used to dishonoring parents that we, we don't take it very seriously. But if you think of what's happening here, we've got someone who should have honored his father and yet he dishonors his father by looking on his nakedness. Um, he does nothing to remedy the situation and restore his father's honor. And then thirdly, he makes matters worse by going and telling his brothers and really saying, hey, look what father's been up to. Um, why don't you go and have a look? You can see by the careful response of his brothers um, how they go in and are very careful to not look on their father's nakedness. They turn their backs and, and they, they approach him very carefully. You can see that it was therefore a very serious offense um, in this cultural context. And as we've seen on a number of occasions, the, these texts in Genesis are alluding to sins that would be, have been prevalent in the nations uh, into which Israel was being sent. And certainly amongst Canaan, uh, their uh, worship included drunkard fertility rituals, which would have been a combination of drunkenness and sexual immorality going hand in hand. And at, at one level, certainly this text is exposing that and, and really affirming to Israel, these are not practices uh, that you should pursue. These are not practices that result in blessing. They result in cursing and discord. Now, that's not the main point of the passage, though. Um, I think as Noah wakes up here and he discovers what has taken place, for the first time in the biblical narrative, we have Noah speaking. Noah has been silent until now. And now Noah speaks, and he speaks words of blessing and cursing. And that obviously uh, raises a question. Up until now in the book of Genesis, God has been the one declaring blessing and cursing. God is the one who bestows blessing. So how are we to understand these words of Noah um, as he blesses some of his sons and curses Canaan. Are they kind of authoritative words? Um, or are they just Noah blowing off steam, just sort of getting it off his chest, as it were, and they're really meaningless with no authority? Well, given the fact that blessing and cursing are such a key theme in Genesis, we obviously, obviously should take them seriously. And this is not the only time where we find blessings and cursings um, on, the myth, on, on the mouths of people. Um, in fact, blessing and cursing in the book of Genesis is a means of explaining pleasant, uh, present realities that Israel was facing. So, for, exam uh, for example, um, why was the land of Canaan being given to the Jews? Why were they being uh, shown God's favor 
and Cain and God's disfavor, well, we can trace the answer to that present reality that Israel were facing as they were going to enter the land. We can trace it back here to this um, past utterance, this historic utterance. And if we have to ask the question, um, how did Israel come to be a nation that enjoyed God's special blessing? Well, you would trace it back to God's blessing uh, on Abraham and his seed. And that would explain that present reality. How is it the, that the, um, the priests would come from the tribe of Levi and the kings and the Davidic kingdom would come through the line of Judah? Well, you would trace that back to the end of Genesis where um, Jacob blesses his sons and declares really um, their future fate, as it were. So these blessings and curses were probably originally intended as something of a prayer uh, to God. God, may this be true. Um, of these people, whether it be blessing or cursing, calling God to bring these things about. And the fact that they are recorded in Scripture means that this is exactly what God intended to do. That as these people, whether it be Noah or Jacob or uh, whoever it is, Israel, they were praying divinely inspired prayers, as it were. Declarations which were so aligned to God's purposes and plans that they were sure to come about. Prophetic prayers, as it were. So that raises a question then. Uh, Noah's expressing something of God's plans and purposes, but the text basically passes over Noah's sin of drunkenness and nakedness. It really passes over Ham's sin of dishonoring, and it curses Canaan. Why is Canaan cursed when Ham is the one um, that has sinned against his father and dishonored his father? And it really shows that the text is not highlighting personal sin. The focus of this text is not to highlight the personal sins of these people, but the sin that grew from these individuals into national sin. In this case, Ham's sin foreshadowed a sin um, that would become national, uh, find national expression in the Canaanites. I mean, Ham had four sons, right? And only one of them were cursed, because only in one of these sons did his sin uh, uh, one, of, one of the lines of descendants that his sin found its full expression. So what is Ham's sin then? What is Ham's sin that grew into the sin of a nation? If you could think about it that way. Now, we can understand this, can't we? Um, because we can understand how a personal sin of racism or racial prejudice can grow into a national sin of apartheid. It can just you know, get uh, an impetus that goes much further than the individual um, that, uh, with which it might have begun, or the individuals who might be guilty of it. And so we've got to ask the question, what is it that Ham did that Noah saw being realized in his descendants, this particular line of descendants, namely Canaan? Well, he's dishonored his father. That's certainly part of it, but that's very personal. The text is bringing it broader than personal to broader issues. And he's really dishonored one whom God has honored. That's the real issue here. That's what, of all the things taking place here, that the text says very little about, what it focuses on is this one issue. That Ham has dishonored one whom God has honored. Now you think about this. Yaz Noah, and the text has told us in Genesis 6, Genesis 9, that Noah has found favor in God's sight. 
that Noah of all the peoples of the earth alone was found to be righteous. And God chose him to work out his plan of salvation, to bring, to bring a salvation and a, a rescue mission for all the nations through this one man. And yeah, Ham approaches this one man who's not only his father, but is a man that God has singled out for special honor and prominence, and he sees nothing in dishonoring this man to great extent, and not only dishonoring him personally and despising him, but dishonoring him amongst his siblings. So the sin here is dishonoring one whom God has honored, because God's name is closely associated with those he seeks to bless. God's honor is connected to the honor of his people. You can see it here in the text. If you look at verse 26, when Noah pronounces this blessing, he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. So he doesn't say, Blessed be Shem. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. So as Shem is blessed, people will see where this blessing comes from, that it comes from God. It comes because they, they are in right relationship with God and they will praise God as the one who is the source of this blessing. And of course, may God enlarge Japheth. This is God's doing, and it's for God's glory. And if you look over at chapter 12, when this blessing finds its focus in the Abrahamic covenant, if you just go over there to chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So he's seeing what, you see what he's saying? I'm going to make you great, I'm going to elevate you, I'm going to make your name great, I'm going to show you favor, I'm going to put you in a position of honor. And then he says there, uh, make your name great, so you'll be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Because that is really the issue. God's name and reputation and honor is closely associated with the honor and name and reputation of his people. If God has seen fit to elevate a nation or a people or a person and give them honor, then to dishonor that person is to dishonor the God who's lifted them up. To despise that person is to despise their God. Because God and his people are connected. And this is what um, Ham is guilty of. And it's not so much his personal sin, but this is what becomes a national sin in Canaan. They despise God and God's people. They despise God's plan and purpose. They despise being reconciled to this God. They choose to follow their own gods and their own ways. And there's punishment that comes upon them because of that. Because they will not recognize and honor the Lord as a nation. To be rightly related to God, you must be rightly related to God's people. Because God's name and reputation is connected to his people. To love God is to love his people. To honor God is to honor his people. To serve God is to serve his people. To oppose God's people is to oppose God. That's really what the text is showing Israel and the nations. Jesus taught a similar thing, didn't he? 
And he really said, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. Matthew 25. Same principle. If we honor and serve and help and build up Christ's people, it's like we've done that unto Christ. And likewise, when we dishonor them, we've dishonored Christ. So this text is about nations. This text is about God's role and purpose in those nations. God's sovereignty over the nations. But we cannot take this text out of its particular context here. Where Israel, a God's nation, going into the land of Canaan, and they are on God's mission to, to bring about God's judgment on this nation because they will not honor Him and recognize Him. And they will do harm to God's people and therefore to God's plans and purposes that are associated with those people. We can't take it out of that and make this a principle which is applicable to any nation in any context. That is to rip this text out of its biblical context. We can't say this applies to the nation of uh, South Africa or to the Afrikaans nation or to the German nation or to any other nation. It applies only to Israel and only to Canaan and only in that original historical context. The text has often been applied to, um, uh, to justify the oppression of blacks because one of Ham's descendants was Cush. And Cush is thought to come from Ethiopia and to be the originator, the progenitor of um, the black, uh, the dark-colored people. Um, but this interpretation ignores the text because is Ham the one that's cursed? No. It's not Ham, it's Canaan. And, and it's not even Cush that is um, cursed. And three quarters of Ham's descendants are actually Caucasian. They're not even African. And the one descendant that does give rise to darker-skinned people, he's not cursed. So this is ripping the text out of its context to suit some personal political agenda. But what is the rightful application of this text? It's reminding us that God has an agenda, not just for individuals. That we have an identity before God, not just as individuals, but as families and nations and tribes and peoples. It reminds us that our individual sin can be learned by our children and passed on from generation to generation and grow into national sin. And as I mentioned, we've experienced that. Our personal sin not dealt with can become a national sin which has destructive influences on a national scale and can be institutionalized in a nation and the laws of the nation. And we are bearing the consequences of that still today and for generations to come we'll bear the consequences of that. But more importantly we see that God has a plan of redemption and his plan of redemption concerns both individuals and nations and peoples and tribes, and languages. And God is intimately involved in the fate of these nations. And He ultimately determines where they are, who they are, and how they prosper or don't. God wants to bring His blessing to all people and to all people groups. And as we participate with God in this mission, we, like Israel, will experience God's blessing, God's divine enablement, God's supernatural enablement. And as we um, oppose God in this mission, we will experience His displeasure and His opposition. 
So God's central role among the nations. Now, we're going to move on to God's sovereignty on the nations because what the text does is it takes this, this sort of fairly narrow example and it expands it out to look at all the nations on a much broader scale. So God's sovereignty over all the nations, really in preparation for chapter 11, how the nations came into existence, and chapter 12, how God would then um, come up with a plan, covenant himself to a particular plan for reconciling those nations to him. So in Genesis chapter uh, 10, then we get the, the, this genealogy, this uh, nations that flowed from these sons on a much broader scale. Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Medai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarma. The son of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, and in their nations. To the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Saptaka. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod, and he was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and therefore it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And from that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. And if you just skip a little bit further down to verse 20, you'll get the end of um, this sort of line. Verse 20, these are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Verse 21, to Shem also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth's children were born, the sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Archipad, Lud, and Aram. And then it goes through this whole line of descendants, and then it ends in verse 31. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So what is this about? Really, this is a continuation of the narrower picture, broadening of the picture. And you get two kinds of genealogies. The one is a linear genealogy. We saw that in Genesis chapter 5. Um, this tracing of a single line of descendants um, to show lineage. And then you get another kind of genealogy, a segmented genealogy like this one where you're not tracing a single line of descendants, but it's charting a number of descendants, charting alliances, as it were, showing associations, relationships between groups of people. So there's three sections in this genealogy. The first uh, 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 corresponding to the three sons of Noah. The first is verse 2, the sons of Japheth. And then it ends in verse 5. From these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. And then we got the sons of Shem, of Ham, in, in verse 6, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, and that ends in uh, verse 21. Um, 20, these are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And then we get the sons of Shem in verse 21, and that ends in verse 31. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So what do you see here? 
that there's three groups of descendants. People are being grouped together according to what? Their lands, their clans, their language, and their nations. That's how uh, the text is viewing all the nations of the earth. are being grouped according to geography, according to language, according to ethnicity, according to nationality. That's how they're being grouped. And it's showing these different associations, how people are connected to each other. This is not, a, not just a genealogy of individuals. There are some individuals here, like Nimrod and Pelek and Eber, but it's not just individuals. It's also showing association of people groups, of ethnic groups, of tribal groups. Some of them end with the, the distinctive suffix im, like in verse 13, Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehebim, those are all people groups, and some of them end with the, the, the suffix ites, like in verse 16, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites. Those are all people groups, distinct peoples in Canaan. So some, some of the, these descendants that are mentioned are individuals, some are groups of people, and some are basically um, place names, like Babylon and Nineveh. Sometimes we're not sure, was this an individual that became associated with a place or a city, or is this just a place or a city? All of that to tell you that this is not tra tracing a linear line of, of descendants. It's tracing associations of people as they associate with these um, uh, ancestors, the sons of Noah. The interrelationship between people, places, languages, and cultures Many of these names would have been very familiar to Israel as they were about to enter the promised land. And so when it, the text talks about this repeated term, the son of, the son of, sometimes it's referring to a literal descendant, sometimes it's just showing association in a, in a more metaphorical way. This, were, this arose out of, uh, this city arose out of and is dependent upon uh, this person or these people showing some kind of interrelationship, association, dependence. And what it's doing is it's showing God's faithfulness to the, the, the covenant he made to Noah. He blessed him and said, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And God is enabling this to happen. And from these three men, God creates rulers and mighty cities and distinct ethnic groups and cultures and peoples and entire nations. And God is sovereign over their geography, He's sovereign over their ethnicity, He's sovereign over their language, their culture, He's set boundaries for the nations, He's determined their origin and their end. That's what the text is showing us. God is sovereign over these nations. Some of these places would have been very significant to Israel, like Babylon and Nineveh. These were nations that ultimately would come and be used of God to judge Israel, just as Israel was now being used of God to judge Canaan. And what the text is showing them is Israel come and encounter these nations, they were to understand that these nations are not all their enemies. This is what Israel didn't get. Yes, God was sending them into Canaan, and this particular grouping of people in the land of Canaan were under God's judgment and were Israel's enemies because they were God's enemies and they were to drive them out. But Israel wasn't to regard all nations as their enemies and God's enemies. That's not at all what God intended. And so what this text is showing, they all have common ancestors. They all are interlinked with one another. They all, in some way, are the expression of God's blessing. 
God blessed their two sons and only cursed one of them. And it's only this little group. And you'll notice Ham occupies the longest section of the, the description. Because it's showing amongst Ham's descendants, there's all these things that were done before the Lord, by the blessing of the Lord, by the sovereign work of God. And it's only the small group that were under God's opposition. Canaan and the nations that were within that land. But the others, they were like brothers and sisters. Literally, they had common ancestors, common lineage, and there were many different associations of language and geography and cities and great heroes and so on. And the table is very carefully arranged. It's not an arbitrary arrangement. It's got these three major sections, and it repeats in these sections um, seven, seven, seven. There's 70 nations listed here, seven groups of ten. So that kind of shows the uniformity. And that term, the, the favorite term here, yeah, the sons of, the son of, is repeated 14 times. Two groups of seven. And Japheth's section shows two groups of seven, sons and grandsons. And the Hamites also have an arrangement of seven. Seven descendants of Cush and seven offspring of Mizraim. And so all of this harks back to creation. God created the world in seven days. And the you know, the seven was a, a, a sort of symbol of completeness, wholeness. God was finished all he had, he had done and it was good. And here again, harking back to that, God created these nations. And he gave them all these characteristics and he put them where he wanted them. And that it was complete. This is a picture of completeness. It's not an attempt to list every single nation. But just to show this is representative of the nation. And this is all God's creation. And they're all interrelated. So as one writer puts it, listen carefully, there was a world of peoples before the call of Abraham. And it is the map of these peoples that concerns the God of Abraham ultimately. And it's out of concern for the salvation of the nations that God calls Abraham and his posterity. You see, this is forming the foundation. We, we mustn't read this text in isolation from the flow of the narrative. And the flow of the narrative is going to move on yet to Babel and how the nations came to be um, scattered across the earth and um, isolated from God, alienated from God. And then Genesis 12 is going to trace God's plan to bring his blessing, to bring restoration to these nations through the seed of Abraham. And so when God enters into the Abrahamic covenant, it's this table of nations that he's created according to his sovereign will and purpose that he desires to be reconciled. And that's why in the Abrahamic covenant he says, I'll bless you, not as an end in itself, but that you might be a blessing and that all nations on earth might be blessed through you. That's the point. And Israel missed it totally. And they treated God's blessing as if it was something individual and personal for their own benefit alone. And they treated the nations as, as those people that should be all nations to be opposed and resisted rather than one and reconciled to God that they might know his blessing again. God places Israel, as it were, in the very midst of the ancient world amongst all these nations so that he might be their representative to bring about his blessing and his reconciliation to these nations whom he created. 
So if I've lost you, maybe just listen for the last few moments because this is really important to get. Israel missed it, and I fear that the church misses this. God has a plan of redemption to buy back, to reconcile, to bring back into favor not only individuals, but languages and tribes and people and nations. And yeah, we find the very foundation. He created them and he scattered them. And he called Abraham and his descendants and blessed them in order to reconcile these nations. The church of all people should be a coming together of distinct languages and nations and people who come together in unity, reconciled to God and to each other because of the work of Jesus Christ. If any organization or entity on earth should represent the power of God and the glory of God amongst man, it should be the church in bringing these diverse people who have, have been scattered all over the world and are so different in every other way except this, that we are blessed of God and chosen by God to be his people. And if any organization should be involved in reaching the nations and reconciling them to God, it should be the church. Because this is God's mission. This is what God is doing. Really, God chose to, uh, to embark on a mission to reconcile the nations, first through the seed of Abraham, Israel, but they failed. They didn't get it. They missed it. They became selfish and, and disobedient, and so ultimately this mission is realized through the Messiah. Let me just take you on a little brief tour, because you have to get this. It is so significant. Yeah, we see the, the foundation. Genesis 12, the plan. We've looked at that. The covenant of God. To Abraham, I'll bless you and I'll make your name great. And I'll make you into a great nation and, and so that you'll be a blessing to others. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now if you go to Psalm 67, we see this desire for worship being realized. Psalm 67. Psalm 67. This plan of God begins being traced right through the Pentateuch, right through all the narratives, and we see Israel failing, but God doesn't lose sight of his vision. Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Why must God bless us? That your way might be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the people groups praise you, O God. Let all the people groups praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge all the people groups with equity. You guide the nations upon the earth. Let all the people groups praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. That's expression of what God desires. Psalm 96. Reading from verse 1 to 10. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation day to day. Declare his glory where? Among the nations. His marvelous works among all the people groups. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. 
Therefore ascribe to the Lord, O families of the earth, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And yet the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. If you look at Isaiah 42, it talks about the commissioning of the Messiah. God's chosen servant, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Isaiah 42. Verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice where? To the nations. He will not cry out loud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick will not be quenched. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by, by the hand and keep you, and I will give you as a covenant for the people groups, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. In Isaiah 49, if you turn over a few pages, Isaiah 49 verse 6, says the work of the Messiah, it's not enough that the Messiah would merely reconcile Israel to God but he must reconcile the nations. Isaiah 49.6 It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I'll make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That is why when Jesus came, he commissioned 12 apostles and sent them out as representatives to the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel that emphasizes God's grace to the Gentiles, we have him not only sending out the twelve as representatives of the twelve tribes of Israel, but sending out the seventy in Luke chapter 10, representative of the, the nations of the Gentiles. That is why when Jesus comes to the end of his life, he commissions the church and says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations people groups, ethne. That's the Great Commission. It includes not only individual salvation, but God's plan to reconcile the nations. That is why in Acts 2, when God sends His Spirit upon His people, what is the first great miracle that happens? They speak in the language of the nations, and each nation hears the gospel preached in their own tribe, in their own language that they understand. And that is why the book of Revelation closes with this great picture in Revelation chapter 7. And what is the end of all God's plans and purposes of redemption? Revelation chapter 7. After this, verse 9, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed in white, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. That is the end to which God is working. And that is the end to which we, we should work. And to the degree we participate with God in his international mission, we will know his favor and his divine supernatural enablement. And that is why I believe we as a church, it makes sense for us to focus particularly on reaching unreached people groups. To focus our efforts and our attention, not just that the gospel would go to all individuals, but particularly on those languages, those tribes, those nations that do not know the Lord and have no opportunity to know him. That we would take the gospel to them, that they might be reconciled to God as a people and stand before this throne and give honor to him for what he's done. This is the realization of God's plan. And God sent Jesus, who left the glories of heaven and the comforts of heaven to walk the road of the cross for this mission. Because this is God's mission. And if it costs Jesus that much, I believe it will cost us as much. And so I really think that this mission is something we as a church need to take seriously. And it's something that is going to cause great suffering and sacrifice on our part. Young people, some of you who believe in the Lord Jesus and who love him, God is going to call you to give up house and home, to leave family and comfort, to give up careers, and to go and give your life and expend yourself in the cause of this great mission. And we will stand behind you. And we will sacrifice with you. Because it's God's mission. And it's requiring all of God's people to understand what he is doing is much, much bigger than my personal comfort and my car and my home and this nice little church and this property. It's much bigger than Midrand. It's much bigger than Joburg and Gauteng. It's all nations and people and tribes reconciled to the one God and worshiping him forever. Let's pray. Father, this is an awesome plan. You're the only one wise enough, sovereign enough, powerful enough to be able to reconcile not just a person, but nations to you. You're the only one who is able to ensure that a representative from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will stand one day in heaven and praise your Son. And you are the only one, Lord Jesus, who is worthy of that praise. And you are worthy of it. Help us, Lord, to be willing to do whatever it takes to be part of your mission. Help us as individuals not to lose sight of what you're doing in the world. And help us as a church, as Midrand Chapel, Lord, help us to be so passionate about this mission that we will pursue it wherever it leads and whatever it takes. Unite us together, Lord, in a passionate desire to see Christ magnified 
amongst the nations. In his name we pray. Amen.